This morning we're going to consider Ruth chapter 1, verse 19, through Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, as we continue looking into the story of Ruth and how God works in the ordinary life of this ordinary young woman. We've seen how uh, Elimelech led his wife Naomi and his family astray from God into the land of Moab and how God uh, disciplined them accordingly. We've seen last week how Naomi and Ruth came back to the land of Israel once God restored food to uh, the, the land of Israel and the, the city of Bethlehem. We saw also last week how Orpah, uh, the other daughter-in-law, turned back and went back to Moab. And we saw how Ruth commits herself to Naomi and essentially says, your God will be my God and wherever you go, I will go with you. And so now we pick up after that statement of Ruth, Ruth chapter 119. The women finish their journey back to Bethlehem, and we pick up the story there. Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Amen. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And may God now bless the reading and hearing of his word this morning. There is a very famous old hymn, a hymn that's actually in our Trinity hymnals. It's a hymn titled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, the old hymn says. And there's a line in the hymn that I actually had a woman confront me about once because she was a little distraught at what it said. If you went to that hymn, you would see the line. It says, behind a, a, a frowning providence, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Behind, behind a frowning providence, God hides his smiling face. And she was a little put off by this. She said, what do you mean, a frowning providence? What, what is that hymn even talking about? And I said, well, it's talking about those times in life where you are in the hands of God, knowing that God is in full control of every aspect of your life, and yet you're looking at how he's handling it, going, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you treating me this way? Why are you handling me so roughly? I know you're in control. I know that God is in charge of all things, but it feels like he's shaking me up. It feels like I'm the little figure in that little snow globe, and God's like that little kid just intent on constantly shaking the snow up. That's the way Naomi feels in Ruth chapter 1 and 2. 
Naomi recognizes God's providence, and yet she feels that God has shaken her up too much. Naomi feels that God has, in fact, wronged her. Naomi is bitter. She has become very bitter because God has dealt bitterly with her. And yet we see the importance of recognizing that second line of the hymn. Naomi missed the second line of that hymn. All she saw was the frowning providence of God. But the hymn says that behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. What the hymn is getting at, Christian, is this reality that often in those moments where you're looking at God going, what are you doing? Why are you treating me this way? Why does it feel like every time I look at your face, all I see is a frown? The reality is that behind the clouds of darkness, God is smiling on you. God is looking favorably on you. That's what we see in our lives, and it's what we see in the life of Naomi this morning. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. They come back to the city that they've left, and we see just how much she's changed, just how much life has damaged her. I'll remind you, it's been 10 years since Naomi and Elimelech and their sons left Bethlehem to go to the land of Moab. And now, a decade later, she's coming home, and her fortunes have clearly changed her. In fact, the Bible says the women of the city are so put off by her that they even ask the question, is this Naomi? Is this the same woman that went out from us 10 years ago? She's been reduced from riches to rags. She's been reduced from a prominent woman of our city to a husbandless, sonless widow with nothing to her name. Is this real? Could this even be the same woman? And Naomi is led to, in fact, rename herself. If you look at verse 20, you see that she demands of the people, don't call me Naomi anymore. If you remember, we talked about how the names in Uh, the Old Testament, are significant. Naomi is a name that means pleasant or sweet. And she says, don't call me that anymore. Because I don't feel that way. Instead, call me Mara, which is the word that means bitter. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. Because God has handled me bitterly. Naomi says in verse 21, I went out full. Well, Naomi, if you went out full, why did you go out in the first place? I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. She says, verse 21, the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Naomi uses a word there, a Hebrew word, ra'ah, the source, the root word, that means to bring calamity. And it's a word that is often used when people are accusing God of dealing with them unjustly. It's the kind of word that Job used when he accused God of handling him unjustly. It's the kind of word that occurs in places like Numbers 11, verse 11, 1 Kings 17, 20, Exodus 5, 22. It's the word you use when you're looking at God saying, God, you are treating me unfairly. You are doing wrong by me. Why have you become my enemy for no reason? And yet, I want you to notice, and we'll we'll see this as we go through the rest of the book. Naomi says, look, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. 
But I want you to notice, even as we saw, that the rest of the book of Ruth will never refer to her as Mara. She demands to be called Mara, and yet we'll see that from God's perspective, her name never changes. From God's perspective, she will always be Naomi. She looks at her circumstances. She looks at her situation, and she says, this is bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And God says, no, I won't call you bitter. I'm going to call you Naomi for the rest of the story. You will never again hear the name Mara in the book of Ruth, even though Naomi demands, call me by that name. She thinks poorly of how God has dealt with her, but behind that frowning providence, God still has a smile, a smiling face for Naomi. God is still dealing kindly with Naomi, even if she won't recognize it. This is one of the problems that we run into, Christians, when you allow your circumstances to determine your feelings. When you allow your circumstances to set the tone of your life, you end up like Naomi. That's what Naomi has done. She has looked at her circumstances, which are bitter circumstances. There's no question about that. We talked about it at the very first sermon, that to be a, a, a widow with no sons to care for you, to, to be abandoned in the ancient world, was like a death sentence. She is in a bitter situation. This is hard. But she's made the mistake of allowing her circumstances and her situation to set the tone of how she's going to live her life. She has essentially said, my circumstances are bitter, therefore I am bitter. My life is hard, therefore I will become hard. This is one of the mistakes that at least I find very easy to make in the Christian life, and maybe you do too. It is the mistake of doing what Peter did when he walked out on the water to go see Jesus in the boat. You remember that? Peter walking out on the water. He was able to walk as long as he was looking where? At Jesus. When did things go wrong? When he looked at the water. When he's looking at Jesus, he is literally able to walk out on the sea towards Christ. But when he starts looking down at the waves that are beneath him, that's when he panics, he loses his faith, and he starts sinking. If you allow your circumstances, Christian, to set the tone of your life, if you put your circumstances in the driver's seat of your life, you are going to be miserable because life is hard. You and I live in a fallen world. There's no getting away from it. If you say, look, I'll be happy when my situation allows me to be happy, I will be happy and pleasant when my circumstances are happy and pleasant, then you'll never be happy and pleasant. Because this is a hard life in a hard world. If the driver's seat of your life has your circumstances at the steering wheel, you're never going to be satisfied. You're always going to be miserable. Dads, husbands, if you say, look, I'll be a pleasant husband when my wife and kids shape up, right? I will be a better husband when they get their act together and they start living the way I want them to live. You're going to be waiting a long time. Wives, if you look at your husbands and you say, look, I will be more pleasant towards him when he starts deserving it. You're never going to do it. You're never going to do it. And moms, if you look at your kids and you say, look, as long as you behave well today, I'll be a happy mom. Right. I'll be cheerful as long as you 
give me reason to be cheerful. Well, I hate to break it to you, but your kids are going to let you down. They're going to let you down. They're, they're little sinners just like you are, and they're going to do things that make you upset. That's the reality of life. And if you let your circumstances dictate how you respond to life, you're never going to be satisfied. You're going to be miserable. That's the mistake Naomi made. She could only see the frowning providence. She could only see how God had dealt so poorly with her, but she couldn't see behind that by faith to what God was doing the whole time. And we see, friends, that God is at work the whole time. Ruth is one of those books. It's like the book of Esther, where it's a book where God makes no personal appearances. One of the reasons I wanted to preach through this book next is because I think the book of Ruth so accurately mirrors the experience of many Christians in the Western world today. Because it's a book where the situation is hard and the scenario culturally is that of apostasy and idolatry. You and I live in an apostate people, a people that a couple hundred years ago gave honor to the name of Jesus, at least outwardly, and now we curse him and we disobey God's law and we go astray from God every day. But also we live in a time where experiencing God seems more difficult, doesn't it? Don't you find yourself reading the pages of Scripture sometime and you read about stories like Elijah and Moses, men who talked face to face with God, men who heard the voice of God audibly with their ears, and you say, why can't I do that? Why can't I have that experience too? Well, friends, that's not a universal experience. In fact, if you, if you actually added up the timeline of Bible history, you would see that the times when God audibly spoke to men and appeared to men and women face to face, at least that we have on record in the scriptures, it's, it's a small portion of the time. There are huge lengths of time where God makes no personal appearances to people. And instead, they have to simply take him at his word and walk by faith in what he has told them already. Ruth is one of those books. God makes no personal appearance in the book of Ruth. He only shows up on the mouths of people. He only shows up in the lives of his people. He never makes a personal appearance. And yet, you see that he's clearly working the whole time. I titled this sermon, God's Hidden Hand of Providence, because that's how providence most often works. It's hidden, behind the scenes. God is working the whole time, but you might not notice it if you're not paying attention. In fact, you might have missed it, even in our reading this morning. We saw a few things that clearly show us how God is at work in the life of Naomi and Ruth. What did the end of chapter 1 say? That last sentence in verse 22. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Barley harvest was the first harvest of the year, probably took place around our month of April, and it was followed up then by the wheat harvest that would go through the end of the harvest season. And, and the Bible presents it as, as happenstance, right? They just so happened to come back to Bethlehem at the time when harvest season was about to begin. The time where food would be most readily available just so happened to be the time that Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem. There's others too, right? Uh, the writer talks about Boaz. He introduced Boaz in verse 1 of chapter 2. We're going to see more about Boaz in weeks ahead. We'll talk about him more. He's the last main character of the story to be introduced. But, but look at how the narrator introduces him. Already he's setting the scenes for what's about to happen. A relative of Naomi's husband. In other words, a man who can redeem Ruth and Naomi. A man of great wealth. A man who has the power 
to redeem Ruth and Naomi, of the family of Elimelech, the family of Naomi's husband, whose name was Boaz. He's there in Bethlehem. And when Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, what does the Bible say in verse 3? She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. I hope you understand that although the Bible is presenting this as just sort of happenstance, right, coincidence, it just so happened that she ended up in the field of Boaz, you understand that there are no coincidences with God. You and I don't live in a world full of chance or luck or coincidences. It sounds cheesy to say that you don't believe anything happens by accident, right? You look at life and you say, I believe everything happens for a reason. And that sounds cheesy to you, maybe, but it's true. Everything happens for a reason. And the ultimate reason is God's providence, God's plan. All things fall out exactly according as God desires them to fall out. And ultimately, his will in every sense and circumstance will come to pass and not be frustrated. And so it is no coincidence that Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem right on time for the harvest season. And it's no coincidence that in Bethlehem at this time is a man who is capable of redeeming them and saving them from their poverty and their distress. And it is no coincidence that when Ruth goes out to pick food in the fields, she just happens to end up at the field of that man. There are no coincidences in life, friend. Even just this past Friday night at the help uh, pregnancy banquet, I had a moment where uh, I had wandered off to go get something to drink. And I won't go into the details, but a, a, a situation arose where I was able to help someone out that would not have happened if I had not wandered off to go get something to drink. You and I don't live in a world of coincidences. Nothing in your life happens by accident. It might feel that way, but God is at work. God is working in every single situation and circumstance. I remember when I first became a Christian and I came face to face with the Bible's teaching of God's providence, this reality that God is ultimately in control of all things. And I wondered at it. I said, man, what does that mean? Like, honestly, I can understand, okay, God controls the stars and God controls the universe and God controls the big stuff, right? but he controls the little things too? I, I don't quite understand how that would work out. Well, he controls the little stuff enough to where he can ordain that Ruth goes to the right field. He can ordain it that Ruth and Naomi show up at just the right time to get food for themselves. And he can ordain it that a man who is capable of saving them from their distress just so happens to be there and just so happens to be in the field, owning the field that Ruth goes to work in. See, friends, Naomi thought God was dealing bitterly with her. She was only looking at the outside circumstances. But the reality is that God, the whole time, has been caring for her and providing for her. And God, even in this circumstance, he is working out a salvation for her. And by the end of the book, she will realize that reality, that God is not dealing bitterly with me, even when my circumstances are bitter but that God the whole time is caring for and providing for me. There are frowning providences in life. There are times when you look at God and you just say, what are you doing? Why are you treating me this way? Why are you handling me so roughly? 
right? Don't you see the fragile package sticker on the box of my life? Don't you see the sticker that says handle with care? You don't seem to be handling it with care right now, Lord. Friends, even when God is shaking up your life, he is caring for you. He is providing for you. He is ministering to you. And we learn from Ruth in this text that what falls to us is simply to trust and obey. I don't know what Ruth's heart was in this situation. She doesn't speak to the bitterness of their circumstances. But we do see what Ruth does. That even in the midst of hard times, what is Ruth doing? She's providing for her mother-in-law. She's going out and into the field to work. She's trusting that someone will take care of her. Trusting that the Lord will provide an answer. She's walking by faith. She can't see it yet. Ruth doesn't know the end of her own story yet. She doesn't know what happens in chapter 4 that you and I know. That God's going to provide a husband for her. And someone who will care for her and her mother-in-law. And provide for all their needs. She doesn't know that yet, but she does know that there's a field to go work in. There's food to go get for me and my mother-in-law, and it falls to me to go out and do it. Friends, you will, you will never walk in God's will more by sitting on the sidelines waiting for it to happen. It's a mistake that we often make when we, when we run up against the teaching on God's will in the Bible. We think, okay, well, I better just sort of wait, and God will sort of do his will and at some point, I'm going to start participating in it, right? At some point, I'll get involved, but I don't want to do something that God doesn't want me to do, so I better just sit still and sit quietly and wait for God to move. Now, that sounds pious, and sometimes there are moments where we just need to sit still and wait for the Lord to work. But there are other times, too, where you only discover God's will by obeying what He's already told you to do. Ruth doesn't know that God has a husband waiting for her in this field, but she does know that she needs to provide for her mother-in-law. Friends, even in the most mundane situations of your life, the way that you most walk in God's will is by simple trust and obedience to him. Just do what he said to do. He'll figure it out. I remember once talking to a man back in college who was, he was frustrated about determining what God wanted him to do with his life. And he had two equally good paths, paths that were both glorifying to God, good things to do that he could jump into. And he would have been good at both of them. And he was just torn. He said, I don't know which way to go because I don't want to pick one on my initiative. And it turns out that it was not God's will the whole time. And I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers, but I knew this much. And I told this friend of mine, I said, don't ever think that you're going to throw God a curveball. Don't ever think that God's at the plate and you're going to surprise him with the pitch that you throw. He knows what you're going to do. And he's already determined how to use what you're going to do. He knows best. And even if you make mistakes along the way, God has ordained those mistakes. And God will even work those mistakes out for his perfect will. Friends, God can use the sins of sinners to accomplish his will. If God can use the worst sins of the worst sinners to bring about his perfect plan of salvation, don't worry about how he might be able to use your mistakes that you make along the way. It's not that you won't make mistakes, but don't think that God somehow doesn't know how to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He can always do it. He can always work. 
Elimelech, Naomi, their family, they wandered away from the Lord and going to the land of Moab. There's no question about it. But it's not like God lost control of the steering wheel at that point. It's not like God took his hands off of control of their lives at that point. And we see in this story how God is guiding them back into his perfect will. And he's providing for them, even in the simplest things like where Ruth happens to go work. So friends, when life has a frowning providence for you, when God's seeming to be shaking up your life, and when you look at your circumstances and you say these are bitter, don't forget that even in bitter circumstances, God is working all things for your good. And he's working out all things according to his perfect plan for your life. May we walk in faithful obedience to him, trusting that the God of all providence can do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this good word. And Lord, thank you for the good news of your providential control of all things. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are a God who, as the Puritans used to say, you can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And Lord, even in bitter, difficult circumstances in our lives, you can be at work to bless, to provide. Lord, we know that because you have ultimately done it in Christ, our Savior. Lord, what, what greater bitterness was there than the bitterness of the cross? And yet, Jesus, through that bitterness, you were lovingly working out our salvation. So God, if you can use the cross, how much more can you not use our lives? Father, help us to trust. Help us to believe that that's true and to live accordingly. Lord, when we come up against bitter circumstances of life, when the kids are disobedient, when husbands and wives are not getting along, when things are hard in families and in the workplace and in the school, Lord, when life is difficult, help us to remember that you have not lost control and that you are still working out all things for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to really believe that in our hearts and to really live accordingly in our lives. We know we can't do that without your Holy Spirit, so give us the Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us to walk according to your perfect word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.